Hello, and welcome to Checkpoint Now, the podcast at the intersection of immunotherapy and toxicities. This is your host, Dr. Afreen Sharif, endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine, and an associate director at the Center of Cancer Immunotherapy at Duke Cancer Institute. I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Tian Zhang. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Tian Zhang, GU medical oncologist and associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, Simmons Comprehensive Cancer Center. Before we begin today's discussion, just a reminder that the content discussed in this podcast is not a substitute for direct professional medical care and diagnosis. The opinions expressed here represent our own. Today, we have Dr. Ole Petter Hamendek and Dr. Lemin, um, both expert endocrinologists from Brigham and Women's Hospital. This is a particularly special moment for me to welcome you, OP, since you were my supervising resident many years ago when I was a sub-intern. Dr. Hamendek is an endocrinologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He directs the Center for Oncoendocrinology, a joint clinical center between Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He is also an educator who directs the Endocrinology Fellowship Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and serves as the education editor for the New England Journal of Medicine group. Thanks for joining us, OP. Thank you so much, Tian, for having me on the podcast. I'm so glad that our paths crossed again. Well, thanks, OP, for joining us. Um, We also have today with us another expert endocrinologist, Dr. Min, who is joining us from the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Hypertension at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is the Associate Clinical Director for of the Neuroendocrine Program and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Min is a physician scientist. He has been doing patient care as well as medical translational research. His research interests focus on immune checkpoint inhibition-related endocrinopathies, neuroendocrine disorders, and neuroendocrine regulation of reproduction. He has served on the NCI Investigational Drug Steering Committee um, Immunotherapy Working Group. Welcome, um, Ali, to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Checkpoint Now, OP and Lee. We're both so delighted to have you join us today. OP, can you share with our audience about your professional journey into finding your niche with being an expert in managing endocrine disease and cancer patients? Yeah, so my interest in the field really started during my endocrinology fellowship. Um, I had a kind of a transformative, I guess, patient encounter of a patient who came to see me in the thyroid clinic and um, had a history of multiple myeloma, had been feeling kind of miserable during his multiple myeloma treatment. They have had to they had to reduce the dose of his antineoplastic agents. And you know, he was just not great. And then finally someone sent a TSH. And the TSH was sky high. So he had profound hypothyroidism. And that really shouldn't have been a surprise. He was on lenalidomide, which has a known side effect of hypothyroidism, but just no one had thought of kind of sending the TSH. So that got me sort of thinking that um, there is a role here for the endocrinologist in helping uh, manage some of these uh, endocrine side effects of, of cancer therapies. I gave a grand rounds on the topic. I wrote a review paper on the topic and then sort of um, started my, my, my career in oncoendocrinology um, that way. That's wonderful to hear. Uh, now, Le, how was your interest in this area ignited? Yeah, similar to OP actually. Um, I had my first case, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor induced uh, um, endocrine toxicity. It's, it was uh, like a rare toxicity. The patient uh, suffered from uh, um, um, melanoma and uh, she was started on 
ipilimumab, you know, it's an anti-CTL4 um, antibody, and it's developed Griff's ophthalmopathy was really bad, and uh, we, you know, she was treated with uh, um, steroids, and subsequently, uh, you know, that was uh, uh, the the medication was in a clinical trial, and uh, we did not know a lot about uh, side effect. Uh, we see more and more patients since then with. Uh, um, endocrine toxicity initially, like a hypophysitis. And I did some study to look for um, uh, the steroids roles in, uh, in terms of improvement of uh, checkpoint inhibitor induced uh, uh, hypophysitis or, you know, and uh, the tumor outcome. So uh, we published a paper, we did not recommend high dose steroids, which is routinely recommended uh, as a standard treatment for uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor induced uh, uh, toxicity. Uh, subsequently, you know, we, we, we look at uh, uh, thyroid toxicity and, uh, and uh, we, um, we uh, were inverted to write a review, um, publish an endocrine review to have a comprehensive review on the uh, immune checkpoint induced uh, endocrine um, uh, toxicity. So that brought my interest in this area, and I'm still working in this area, uh, doing some research on the patient care. Well, that's wonderfully. Um, I've read many of those papers, and that certainly shaped my interest as well. Um, so wonderful, exciting work coming from you. Um, you. Now let's get into the focus of our discussion here today, which is autoimmune type 1 diabetes uh, from immune checkpoint inhibitors. So Ali, uh, how often do you see the side effect in patients? So the short answer is it's not often. Actually, uh, we since uh, since this uh, um, immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment, uh, we graduate this kind of patient. We did we kind of collect the patient in our um, in our database. We have about twenty patients so far. I, I'm pretty sure it's a little more than that. But by a, a study, the incidence is about zero point five percent, which means uh, if you have uh, one thousand patient exposed to this immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment, only four patients would develop this uh, this toxicity uh, in terms of type one diabetes. That's great to hear um, that it is on the rarer side. Um, is there a difference in the incidence based on which agent the patient is treated with? Um, is it more common, like other adverse events, with combination therapy with CTLA four with PD one inhibitors than with monotherapy? Yeah, there's a, there's a study, uh, they look at a WHO uh, database uh, uh, by individual report adverse uh, effect. Uh, what is the funding? The funding for that paper is 70% um, uh, of this uh, autoimmune diabetes uh, are related to uh, anti-PD-1 uh, uh, treatment, uh, and uh, some of them relate to uh, anti-PD-AR1. And the combination treatment actually uh, the incidence was not high. There's one possibility because, you know, combination treatment was introduced later, a patient initially just on monotherapy, that's my interpretation, but it, it, it's very rare in patient only received the anti-CPIF4 treatment. Interestingly, how do patients often present with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, so um, the typical presentation, and I say typical a little bit here, um, tongue-in-cheek because it is so rare uh, that it's, it becomes a little bit difficult to say, you know, what's typical and what's not. But I'll say that the patients that we have seen have typically presented very acutely. 
to the point where we've had normal glucose values on a Friday and then admission in di diabetic ketoacidosis on Sunday. Um, so a very rapid onset of hyperglycemia with diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, that, that has been um, the classic presentation. And sometimes, and most of the time, I would say the patients have symptoms that go with the DKA. So things like, um, you know, polydipsia, polyuria, uh, nausea, vomiting, orthostasis, and so on. Now, if you go back to the literature, there are certainly cases that have been, been described of more insidious onset of hyperglycemia. That really hasn't been the experience in our, uh, in our center. That's really helpful, OP. And when would you recommend a hospital admission for patients? Is it only for patients who present with DKA or uh, what other symptoms um, or signs are you looking for? Yeah, so typically with these patients, because they present in DKA, uh, almost invariably they are admitted to the hospital, um, both for uh, appropriate treatment for the DKA, but also to get all the, the, the training needed for a, the new medication in their life, which will be insulin. So uh, we, we typically will admit, uh, admit them. Now, there are, you can certainly manage DK if it's mild uh, in the outpatient setting, but that's usually more in people who have established diabetes where you don't have the very high educational needs that uh, a, new, a patient with new diabetes would, would need. Now, um, if the patient is presenting in a more insidious manner, um, you, you, you don't necessarily have to uh, admit them uh, purely for uh, a glucose number. So if they don't have diabetic ketoacidosis, you can certainly manage this as, uh, as more of, a, um, uh, of an outpatient. Of course, if the presentation is not the acute diabetic ketoacidosis, I think there's a differential diagnosis here of just simply a, a presentation of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and so you would probably want to evaluate more for, for those types of things uh, if they have that somewhat more atypical presentation. I couldn't agree more, OP, with what you're saying um, as far as the management is concerned. The patients I have managed as an outpatient were mostly in mild decay or those who have had type 2 diabetes and now have suddenly transitioned to type 1 diabetes or autoimmune where you see a higher severity and grade of hyperglycemia in these patients. So these are patients who are highly knowledgeable about their disease to begin with and have some exposure to diabetes education and how to test their blood sugars and administer insulin. But an insulin-naive uh, patient who has no pre-existing history of diabetes is very challenging, even if it's in mild, to manage this um, with the available resources at such an acute setting as an outpatient. So I couldn't agree more. It's, it should be decided case by case. Mm -hmm. um, now, Lee, um, we are often checking antibodies, um, autoimmune markers um, for specific for type 1 diabetes once patients uh, are diagnosed with, um, with the side effect. In my practice and in prior studies, we've seen clinically and biochemically confirmed cases of type 1 diabetes with negative antibodies. What do you see in your experience and what have you seen at uh, Brigham? Yeah, so we did a small study, including 11 patients. We look for uh, their uh, antibody. Actually, uh, the positive rate is about 50%, and it's pretty consistent with other literature. So uh, it's unlike classic uh, type 1 diabetes. You, you, you're going to see like a 90% of the patient who... Uh, or have a, a positive antibody, but this unique immune checkpoint induced uh, uh, diabetes say uh, only about 50% uh, uh, with a positive antibody. So if patient with a negative antibody uh, does not necessarily mean they do not have autoimmune diabetes. 
That's really helpful. Uh, um, and in that 50% of patients who don't have uh, positive antibodies, how would you confirm the diagnosis of uh, autoimmune, immune-mediated type 1 diabetes um, from our checkpoint inhibitors? Yeah, so first of all, I, I like to know the history. Uh, actually, the most common hyperglycemia from oncology uh, patient population is steroid-induced hyperglycemia. So uh, you ask uh, um, the question, and in the meantime, uh, we check C-peptide. Uh, you know, uh, if, if it's high, uh, we, uh, you know, it's, it's unlikely uh, autoimmune diabetes. Uh, if it's low, uh, we I like to repeat again because sometimes you you have uh, glucose toxicity if glucose level is very high. So you, you like to repeat later just to confirm. So C-peptide is is a, is, is a very important uh, um, uh, lab uh, we, we use to to help to uh, distinguish type two and the type two in this population. Thanks so much. That's that's an excellent point, and I uh, I can't emphasize more what you just said. That in the absence of antibodies, uh, that that should not change the diagnosis and treatment of someone you suspect strongly suspect of having autoimmune type one diabetes. And C peptide and other supportive labs, a stimulated C peptide when the sugar is elevated, is actually very very helpful in getting to that diagnosis. Uh, now, Opie, um, since we were talking on the lines of treating mild cases of DKA or mild cases of hyperglycemia or patients with suspected autoimmune diabetes who are not severe, like presenting in an acute setting, how um, should oncologists and other providers approach um, someone who's not in DKA? Yeah, so certainly the, the sick patient who is in DKA, moderate to severe DKA, that patient needs uh, you know, admission, and uh, there are very good algorithms for how to manage DK in that setting with intravenous fluids, with um, with insulin, and usually intravenous insulin, and uh, electrolyte monitoring and, and repletion. In patients where uh, you have mild diabetic, diabetic ketoacidosis, or perhaps even just hyperglycemia without um, ketoacidosis, you you can manage it with um, with uh, some some uh, sub subcutaneous insulin and intravenous intravenous fluids. Uh, again, not typically what we um, what we would do in someone who's brand new to this diagnosis, because of all the needs that that you have to um, that you have to tackle, which is difficult to do. A patient clinic, um, and if you have an infusion infusion uh, abilities, or in the emergency room. So most of these patients do end up getting getting admitted. Now, if you have um, a patient with um, hyperglycemia, uh, who you can you can sort of readily teach how to do injections. I have had patients who uh, are nurses and or who have experience injecting um, low molecular weight heparins. You can manage this uh, very mild hy or hyperglycemia without diabetic ketoacidosis uh, in in the clinic. Uh, it does require some coordination here between the oncologist um, and either an endocrinologist or a primary care clinician, um, and ideally also uh, the diabetes educator. And that can be tricky to um, to to make all of that happen in uh, sort of the oncology clinic setting. Uh, but this is sort of where it's helpful to sort of have a a go-to um, uh, endocrinologist that uh, is used to managing some of these things and can help guide the oncologist um, with uh, with getting a treatment started. Yeah, great points, OP, on that. And I think um, 
when we look at these patients, it's, more, it's less of a clinical dilemma on how to manage this and more of a logistic uh, issue of how to coordinate all of this as an outpatient, which is readily and easily available in a very short span when the patients get admitted to access and the logistics around getting a diabetes educator, injections, teaching them, and getting all of this done uh, and coordinated as from an outpatient perspective can be the most challenging part with managing less severe presentations of DKA or even mild hyperglycemia. Now, and maybe OPM, maybe I can just interject here that uh, one of the the things that we, you know, we see hyperglycemia not just with immune checkpoint inhibitors, we see it with a variety of other uh, antineoplastic agents. So we have set up um, now such that one of our uh, diabetes educators is essentially on call for uh, for these sorts of cases and can see patients same day uh, for uh, diabetes teaching and initiation of uh, of insulin, and uh, and it's not just for the for the oncology patients. This is sort of a, um, a something that's available for acute hyperglycemia in general, but has been mostly rolled out with the cancer patients uh, for for a variety of reasons. So um, it 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 really is uh, that really is a key part of the the team in managing diabetes. Absolutely, that's that's wonderful to hear. I hope we can do something like this at Duke as well. OP and Lee, um, I'm going to open this question to both of you. Um, my patients who develop type 1 diabetes as a consequence of cancer therapy are often very distressed about this diagnosis. I've collected anecdotal data when they come to clinic and see me with diabetes distress scores on them, and I see a heightened level of stress around having to co-manage their cancer, the medications, the multiple injections, and how to eat with their diabetes. Now, I'm sure you see this as well. And how do you counsel such patients? And what resources do you have at Dana Farber and Brigham to support them? So I'll open it first to OP. Yeah, uh, I think obviously any chronic disease is going to be uh, a stressor, but diabetes in particular, be because of the impact that it has. Um, you know, maybe not every second of every day, but but certainly uh, a large proportion of the day is spent in considering the impact of your activities, of your food intake, of your medications on your glucose values. And then you have the ad added stress of um, maybe hypoglycemic events or or symptoms of uncontrolled hyperglycemia. Uh, and that's challenging for anyone. Uh, any patient with new type 1 diabetes will have uh, have that stressor. But most of the time, this is the one chronic disease that they have to uh, tackle, and uh, and they don't have, um, you know, oftentimes metastatic um, cancer that they also need to consider and tackle and think about at the same time. Uh, not to mention that occasionally there are um, uh, impacts of the cancer treatment on the glycemic control. Things like if they switch to a different therapy, maybe they need dexamethasone for their nausea management or um, uh, you know, there are other agents that can raise the blood sugar too. So, so it becomes um, kind of a full-time job for these patients to manage their, their diabetes while their cancer, perhaps they only have to come in every three weeks for their infusions. So we do have a psychosocial oncology um, service at Dana-Farber, which is extremely helpful in, in managing some of these, uh, some of these uh, challenges. And I will also say that our certified diabetes educators can be really helpful, uh, not just in um, um, kind of helping patients uh, tackle the stressor of their new condition, but also in thinking about uh, ways to maybe lessen the impact of the diabetes on their lifestyle. Uh, 
And that has been uh, really helpful in many of my patients. Well, thanks, OP. That's wonderful insight. And I love the resources that you have at Dana-Farber. Now, Lee, um, what is your take on this? What do you see in your patients? Yeah, so I agree with OP. Actually, I think a diabetic educator is really play a key role. Uh, I have quite a few patients. Uh, one one part is you know patient want to focus on the, on the uh, treatment for the cancer because they say that's that's something take their uh, life away. Uh, some of them you know even this they told me I don't care about my sugar and I just want to focus on, on my cancer treatment. So uh, I think the important part is the later patient aware about, uh, you know, uh, the management uh, is important to not only to improve the uh, glycemic control, it is also important to, to improve the uh, tumor response and the uh, cancer outcome. Uh, so I typically, uh, this kind of patient, I will uh, connect with uh, our uh, nurse practitioner who is specialized in this uh, uh, diabetes and uh, to discuss about uh, uh, for this type one, discuss about insulin um, pump and also continuous glucose monitoring. I think uh, eventually, when they get used to this, they're happy about this, about management. Thanks, uh, both OP and Le. Um, you know, I I think there's so many support mechanisms, which is great um, that you have that that type of support for your patients, and hopefully, this will um, uh, allow others to learn from your program as well. Uh, Le, do you know, um, and uh, do we as a field know why patients get autoimmune type 1 diabetes um, from these uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors? Is it through the T cell activation that we're eliciting, or what's the mechanism there? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. We do not have a lot of data to to help us to identify, you know, what is the mechanism underlying. Uh, I think, number one, it's similar, but clearly distinguished from classic type 1 diabetes. Because even look at the antibody um, positive rate, I mentioned earlier, uh, in classic autoimmune uh, type 1 diabetes, the positive uh, antibody rate is more than 90%. But in this kind of population, checkpoint inhibitor-induced uh, uh, type 1 diabetes is only 50%. And uh, Acute onset of this diabetes uh, in checkpoint inhibitor, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, most of them, they are Cannot. This is a unique feature. In terms of uh, our mechanism, uh, it you know it has a strong link to anti-PD one, and uh, their studies show beta cell express PDL one. So when you have anti-PD one to block PDL one, and you might increase uh, uh, the toxicity. So, but you know you the such a low incidence uh, rate is only 0.5%. It's, it, it is not explain everything that's from my view. And, uh, and also the other part is, um, uh, if you look at uh, um, pancreatitis and uh, autoimmune diabetes, the, we did a study look for that actually. There are about 20% overlap, but not, not, it's, not, it's not everyone with type one diabetes are gonna develop pancreatitis or Versus a patient developer pancreatitis, autoimmune induced, uh, uh, I mean, like a checkpoint inhibitor induced uh, pancreatitis, they do not develop a type 1 diabetes. So the mechanism I can tell you is, is, is not, we don't know yet. So we, we need to do more to find it out. 
So Lee, um, that gets me to asking one more question. I think that was a, a great insight into the mechanisms and what we know and what we don't know about type 1 diabetes. But do you see any therapies um, for conventional type 1 diabetes emerging from the experience we've uh, learned from these drug-induced, acutely and abruptly developing uh, type 1 diabetes patients? Yeah, so I, I would say uh, it's, it's not really clear. Um, like I say, initially, uh, uh, people talk about use high-dose steroids uh, as an anti-inflammatory uh, treatment to, to help to, uh, um, you know, to, um, uh, to inhibit inflammation and hopefully to reverse this, uh, this uh, process. Uh, but, you know, steroids uh, itself cause hyperglycemia, and I don't see any data in the literature to say it's working. And they are, um, people use anti-TNF uh, used for other uh, toxicity like a colitis uh, or, um, uh, you know, um, hemolytis. But I, I do not see any uh, literature data myself uh, to say if it's used for this type one diabetes. It's, it's, it's working. I, I, don't, I don't see that. But there's a potential to look for. But on the other hand, you always have to keep in mind uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor is to induce autoimmunity um, and the increase in immune response to against the cancer. If you use something to inhibit your immune system, and uh, what, what, what about the outcome of tumor response? You might also inhibit the tumor response. So we have to weigh this balance, uh, tumor response and improve the, uh, the side effect. Thanks, Lynn. That's really helpful. Um, OP, when Afreen mentioned an onco-endocrine program that you direct at Dana-Farber, I was curious to learn about it. Um, can you share insights about your program? Yeah, absolutely. This program came to be in 2015 when I went from being a fellow to going on faculty and uh, was sort of my, my, uh, my, my, where I had my passion uh, based on my experiences during fellowship. So we basically see patients uh, who are either um, in the midst of their cancer treatment or who are many, many years after their cancer treatment, so long-term survivors, with any endocrine complaint that they might have. And um, it, it uh, consists of me as the endocrinologist, and we're housed in the um, adult survivorship program at Dana-Farber. So we also have all the services that, is, um, that are available within, within that program. We end up working very closely with the clinicians at uh, at Brigham for a variety of reasons. One of them is that we have uh, many very subspecialized programs at the Brigham. For example, for example, Lee is very involved in the neuro neuroendocrine program, and we have amazing neurosurgeons. So, for patients that are looking for neurosurgery for a pituitary lesion, for example. I would send them to see uh, Lee and his colleagues rather than see them myself. So uh, it's a very collaborative program between Dana-Farber and, uh, and the Brigham and has really served um, the patients well, but I think also the oncologists. Um, it's it sort of become a, um, I, I think a, a, the oncoendocrinology program has become a, a resource for the oncologists to reach out to when they have endocrine issues or concerns or questions uh, relating to their patients also relating to their their research. Uh, so I, I've helped a lot of the oncologists in various endocrine aspects of their studies, which has been very satisfying. Well, that's amazing to hear, um, OP. Now, in your practice, um, what is the most common diagnosis that you see? Yeah, so when I first started, there actually had been uh, a... Um, survivorship program for endocrinology for long-term survivors of hematologic cancers. 
and that was primarily Hodgkin's. So a big chunk of my patients have hypothyroidism or thyroid nodules due to mantle radiation for their Hodgkin's disease. But that was sort of a, a legacy population that I, that I took over. But uh, nowadays, I would say that the majority of my patients are the patients with um, osteoporosis related to the use of a aromatase inhibitor. Um, and that's in part because that's who I, um, that, that's sort of who I, um, my, 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 my colleague in the survivorship program is a breast oncologist. So she has been very good at promoting the program uh, in, the, in the breast oncology group. Um, the uh, there there was a while where a period where the most common diagnosis was immune checkpoint inhibitor induced thyroiditis, but um, between um, the oncologist just seeing a lot more patients and get, gaining more familiarity with the management of this condition himself, and also uh, uh, we developed a clinical algorithm for the management of. Uh, thyroid function abnormalities in patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors. Most of those patients never see me uh, now, so that the number there has really has really dropped. I, I usually only see uh, the, the the more complicated cases of thyroiditis at this point. That sounds amazing. The infrastructure that you've put into place. Um, how does the referral process work, and how do uh, oncologists like myself reach you um, for a consultation for their patients? Yeah, we certainly have a formal referral in our electronic health record, uh, which uh, goes to um, my scheduler. But typically, I review these referrals to make sure that they are more appropriate for me as opposed to one of the uh, specialty programs that I alluded to at the Brigham. But uh, probably the majority of referrals start off as an email from the oncologist to me asking for some advice on a, on a patient. And it allows me to give some, some short-term advice uh, that the oncologist can can start, so they can start to send some labs or get a bone density scan, uh, and um, and and sort of get the ball rolling, uh, and then I can schedule the patient into my clinic uh, at the next available uh, appointment. Well, that's an amazing infrastructure, OP, and um, that was some great insight into your very unique program. And I want to thank you on air for um, guiding me in building something similar at Duke to serve our patients here locally. I'm excited to work with our patients and oncologists here and uh, you, and basically derive what I can derive from your experience that will be so valuable in shaping ours. Thanks so much, OP. You're welcome. I'm glad to, uh, glad to be of help. OP, um, any parting thoughts you would like to share with our audience? Well, I guess I would just say that uh, the management of any medically complex patient is is going to be a teamwork uh, teamwork um, experience, and that is true for for the the patient with cancer also. And uh, more and more, I think it's becoming uh, clear that the endocrinologist should be part of that team as we start to see more endocrine um, uh, side effects of some of the cancer therapies, and not to mention incidental endocrine uh, findings on imaging or lab tests that are sent in these patients. So um, I think the, uh, the management of the oncology patient um, uh, should um, you know, involve a, a multidisciplinary approach and, uh, and don't forget about the endocrinologist. Oh yeah, definitely don't forget the endocrinologist, right? <laughs> so Ali, any, uh, any parting thoughts for our audience from your side? Yeah, I totally agree with OP. Uh, it's a multidiscipline uh, management. We need to work with oncologists, uh, endocrinologists. Actually, recently we we have a, a project to work with uh, oncologists on um, glycemic control. So what uh, initially, actually, it was a little 
um, issue arise from oncology infusion center. You know, every patient when they when they're going to have the infusion, they do uh, BMP uh, Chem Seven, and sometimes patient with diabetes they can have a sugar like a, a blood sugar like a more than three hundred. And then what what should they do? So oncologists scratch their head and uh, they 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 want us to help, and which we we kind of work with them and we kind of generate an algorithm for this acute. Um, with so-called acute hyperglycemia occurring just, uh, you know, just in the infusion center. Patient can't wait for the infusion. They go home, initially everything fine, they go home on the same day. So what, what, what should they do about this hyperglycemia? So we generate an algorithm. Uh, in the meantime, we also work with oncologists to, uh, you know, to, to, to address, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, the patient um, uh, diabetes management with uh, coexistent uh, 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 malignancy. Uh, we try to improve the quality of life uh, by, you know, providing um, uh, better um, uh, guidance and a better device to help them with a better glycemic control. Well, that's amazing, Lee. I think the bottom line that I'm hearing from both UNOP is that um, it takes a village to uh, manage patients and co-manage patients. And, uh, you know, my favorite uh, specialists to work with and colleagues to work with are our oncologists. So uh, I think we all make a great team. And it sounds like at Brigham and Dana, you all make a great team as well. So um, thank you, OP and Lee, for joining me and Tian today um, for our podcast, Checkpoint Now. I am especially delighted um, since today I'm not the only endocrinologist here. And it was very encouraging to hear from fellow endocrinologists who share, same, uh, share the same interest. Thanks again for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks again, La and OP. For our audience, please remember to tune in again in two weeks. You can reach us at checkpointnowpodcast at gmail.com. And please remember to follow us on Twitter at checkpointnowmd.